Good morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting with verse 13. Before we do that, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the opportunity to share your word. Lord God, I thank you that this message goes out unchecked by any demonic thing, Lord God. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you bless your people, Lord God. I thank you, Lord God, that this is you and not me, Father, and this is for them and for me, Lord Jesus. So we receive the word, Lord God, the engrafted word, which you said is even able to save our own souls, Lord God. We thank you for the ability to gather together here, Lord Jesus, and we count it a great blessing, a great privilege, Lord Jesus. We honor you, Father, for you are good and you are only good, Lord God. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Before I get into this, I'm going to give you a little backstory because when I think me and Heather's first year of marriage, uh, Sister Val was youth pastor and Mark helped, and then Mark was the assistant pastor. Well, they were going to step down, so we stepped into that position as, as youth pastors. And we were probably youth pastors for about three years, I think. It was around three years. And I went from that role to an assistant pastor role for about four years. And then we moved from that church to another church, which was Life Church. That was probably one of the biggest moves that we ever made because we were leaving a I wouldn't say necessarily legalistic church, even though we had legalistic ideas because most denominations are based on the law and they preach the law and your ability to maintain the law equals your relationship with God. So that's the mind state we had. But early in our, and well, about two years into as being youth pastors, I met a guy named Edgar. Him and his family, he had four kids and, uh, him and his wife came there, his family, his kids came to the youth ministry. And then I was working as a youth pastor, but I wasn't licensed as a youth pastor. I was just in the role. But we had went to lay ministers classes to get our lay minister license, which if you know anything about that, you're just studying basically church doctrine and uh, church history. So... I wouldn't say necessarily that you're indoctrinated with their beliefs, but that's what you're studying is their beliefs. And if you're under that denomination, normally you ad adopt those beliefs. Well, me and Edgar had grown really, really close, really, really good friend. I probably spent four maybe out of seven days a week at his house, or he was at the church, or we would do stuff together. Me and him and Heather would go out every Saturday, and we would hand out tracts and witness to people in parks, and we went door to door. So we were really close, and we were taking this class together. And one week, right before we're about to go into to our lay minister's class, which, remember, it's church history and church doctrine that you're going through. He says to me, I'm at his house, and, you know, we're getting ready to go, and he says to me, Brother Steve, he said, God's been showing me something. And I said, well, I said, what's, what's that? You know, because I'm excited because, you know, I know him. He knows me. You know, I know his walk with the Lord. He knows my walk with the Lord. He says, don't think this is crazy. He said, but God's been confirming it to me all week. I was like, well, what is it? He said, once you're saved, you can't lose your salvation. I said, Edgar, that's not God. That's the devil, man. 
I, I did, honestly. And I went through these scriptures, and the majority of the scriptures that I'm going to go through today, this was my stance on once saved, always saved. I didn't believe that once you're saved, you are always saved. And I used scriptures like these to argue that point. And so we argued. It actually got heated, and we're good friends, so it eventually died down. And I just thought, well, that's that, you know my point, praise God, he won't believe that stuff. Well, he comes to the lay minister's class and he still wants to talk about it. <laughs> you know? And I'm thinking, we just went through all this. <laughs> I gave you scriptures. <laughs> he had scriptures too. <laughs> but there was eight of us who were all trained in the word and we're all trained according to religious tradition. And how many of you know one against eight, you're not going to win that? And it was one against eight. And uh, to this day, I regret that. But I did it in ignorance, praise God. And don't praise God that I did it in ignorance, but <laughs> praise God I'm still not in ignorance. <laughs> Amen. And uh, that class was chaotic, it was unbeneficial that night. It was unbeneficial and unproductive to the Word of God. It didn't produce any life out of it, any encouragement. We walked away feeling like we were right. He walked away feeling like we were probably fools. You know? And before I even get into that, I'm going to share another story with you. I'm going to get into the Word. i got a lot of Word to get into, but it's the spirit of, of judgment and the spirit of people that think they're right based on religious tradition or keeping the Ten Commandments or here I am, I'm holy because I do this. Therefore, if you don't do this, then you're not as holy as me. And there is, we don't try to defile ourselves. You can't actually defile yourself. I'll get into that. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm going to use my mom for this example. She won't mind, and if she does, she'll have to tell me after church, not while I'm preaching. Praise God. <laughs> We're talking, and, and it's a more early morning, and she says, you know, why don't you erase this person from your Facebook? She's always on there. She's cussing and just talking foul, and she's a childhood friend. I mean, early childhood, we were like best friends all the way up until probably 11. Yeah, no. Then I moved to Texas, and time and space separates people. You have to understand, the reason why my mom has my Facebook page is because she has my old iPad. <laughs> and she never set up her own account on it, so she sees my news feeds. <laughs> so if you ever see me on there, and I, told, and I tell you I ain't been on in a couple days, it wasn't me looking at it. <laughs> I tell her, don't be liking people's stuff. <laughs> don't do that. Because <laughs> they think I'm liking it. <laughs> but I told her, I said, let me ask you something. I said, did somebody judging you ever change one thing in your life? One thing. If you could give me one example of that, I would be satisfied. Just one. And she didn't have to answer. I already had the answer. I said, somebody judging you will never bring change into your life. What brings change is people who walk in the love of God, who realize that I was at a place where you're at. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, 
I wouldn't be where I am. So where you are, I'm not judging you. But what I'm doing, I try to help you. Amen. And it literally means meeting a person where they're at. Because you could have never got saved if God would have seen you as sin. God didn't see you as sin. He's seen you as a person who did commit sin. But let me ask you something. Was The Bible says that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. But it says that while we were yet sinners, God gave His Son. So before you ever did one righteous work for God or one good work for God, God decided to put His love towards you and invest Himself for you. Before you ever did one good work, He made that choice. So we come to this and we think, well, then works cannot be what gains salvation because He chose to die for you and He loved you before you were ever saved. Amen. Amen. And with that, we're going to get in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, listen to what it says, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet as so by fire. Know you not, this right here, verse 3.16 and 17 is what I used on Edgar. Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Pretty self-explanatory. I mean, if you just read it without that, and that's what I used to do. Well, two weeks ago, Sunday morning, I'm sitting there minding my own business like Pastor Mark does. Amen. <laughs> Sorry, Brother Ben. <laughs> sitting there minding my own business. You know, Heather's gone. It's just me and the kids. Kids are in the room playing. And I'm um, watching a message by Bill Winston. The Lord brings this to my mind. I know this first by heart. But I know that when a scripture comes to my mind that I know by heart, it's usually God trying to reveal something to me. I've, I figured that out. So I got up, went and got my Bible. I literally said, what do you want to show me? And my eyes went to if any man. And I said, why is that not in first person? Why would it say of any man? I looked up that word. It's actually one word. It means whosoever defiles the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy. Then it goes back into first person. It says which temple you are. And you say, well, what's the significance of it being in first person? Or if it's not in first person, what's the significance of that? If you understand that if any man defile the temple of God means whosoever, and you line that up with Scripture when Jesus said, whosoever shall cause one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to offend. Okay, so it goes from if any man, which means whosoever, if you have a millstone tied around your neck and cast into the sea, do you think that's God destroying you? 
Yeah, it's God destroying you. But listen, the temple of God cannot be defiled from within. Okay? The temple of God is pure. The temple of God is holy. Okay? That means that something has to be brought into the temple of God to defile it. And this verse is actually talking about whosoever, whosoever. Jesus said, whosoever shall cause one of these little ones to offend, it would be better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and cast into the sea. That's the judgment of God. And that this verse, in its context, that is what it's talking about. It goes from whosoever, and then he reminds them who they are. Okay, because you got to look at this. The book of 1 Corinthians is a letter to people who are not acting like Christians. I mean, you got this man, he's sleeping with his father's wife, okay, and, and he's in the church, sleeping with his father's wife, and the church is accepting him. And then you, you got people who are sleeping with prostitutes. Paul had to write them and say, should I take my body, which is the temple of God, and join it with a harlot? He said, God forbid. That's not the will of God, that I should take my body, the temple of God, and join it with a prostitute. But never one time in there did he refer to them as unsaved or that they're not the temple of God. And these people are committing sins like this? You would think, wow, if anyone was not the temple of God, it would have to be the church at Corinth. I mean, come on. They're committing sins that, that we would think people just fell away. But not one time. Search the scriptures, you won't find it. And you know the beautiful thing about in 2 Corinthians, the man that he that was sleeping with his father's wife, that he told them to kick him out the church, in the second letter he says to bring him back in as a brother. You mean this man took his own father's wife, was sleeping with him, and then the church kicks him out, and then in the second letter to the church of Corinth, he tells him to bring him back in and welcome him back as a brother. You can't welcome somebody back as a brother if you think that they lost their salvation. Salvation was never dependent upon our works. That's why it says, whosoever. It's not in first person because this scripture in its context is literally talking about works. And it says that if any man, all men's works will be tried. And if they're tried and they stand, that he'll receive a reward. But if they're tried, and they don't stand, that everything he has, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved as one tried by fire. You're telling me that this man never worked a work of God? Everything that he did was consumed, but he himself was saved. Is that the scripture? That's what the scripture says, that he himself shall be saved. So the verse in his context is not even dealing with you defiling the temple. It's dealing with if any man, whosoever, shall defile the temple of God. God will destroy him, and then he tells him why. Because you're that temple. You're the temple of God. Amen. Amen. God is good. He is. Salvation is not based on works. We attach words like works or repentance, or forgiveness to salvation. And we say that if you work right and you repent enough, then you will be saved. According to Romans chapter 10, it says that in order to be saved, you must believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord 
and that God raised him from the dead. And it says, you shall be saved for with the heart man believes and is justified and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now those are the only requirements. A man yelled out in the crowd, Jesus is teaching. He said, Master, what must I do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, simply, he could have said, keep the Ten Commandments. He could have said anything. He said, believe on the one whom he sent. That's all he said. He didn't mention anything about works. But because we attach works to salvation, when our works don't measure up, all of a sudden we don't feel saved. <laughs> And the thing is, is that your salvation was never based on what you accomplished. It was based on what he accomplished. Amen. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. I'm going to deal with these verses. I used to beat people up with these. I used to yell at the TV to Baptist preachers who were teaching eternal salvation. I was like, man, those guys are going to hell, man. You're leading God's people astray to just commit sin and think they can do whatever they want. Couldn't be more far from the truth. I've never met anyone who understood the message of grace who just wanted to go out and ruin their life because they felt like they could sin and do whatever they want and still get to heaven. Do you understand sin carries a heavy consequence to it? And it's not God judging you. It's not. It's not God judging you. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of heavenly gifts and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. This was my go-to verse. <laughs> this was my go-to verse. Thank God I don't go to it like that no more. <laughs> Listen to what it says. Let me slow it down. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gifts and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So, we've seen the word impossible. And you think impossible means it can't be done, right? Sure does. Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 19.23 Then said Jesus unto his disciples, I tell you the truth, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now the reason why I pulled this scripture out, the reason why I believe the Lord gave it to me, because that word impossible, when Jesus says with men, this is impossible, is the same Greek word. It's adunados. It's the strong numbers 102. Right here, Jesus uses the same word. It's the same Greek word. And he says with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We read this as an impossible thing for God to do. It's not saying it's an impossible thing for God to do. It says it's an impossible thing for you 
to bring them to repentance. Because we know that things are that are impossible with man are very possible with God. Okay? So we don't limit God based on our understanding of the Scriptures because we understand that there's a deeper revelation that we haven't attained to yet. And we all know people who had so-called fallen away from God, who we would have considered unsaved, and you see them now and now they're serving God. If it was an impossibility, that couldn't happen. But it says... Dear children, this is what it says, if you see your brother taken in a fault, that word fault in other places where it's translated is literally translated transgression. That means he's doing something he shouldn't be doing. He said, if you see them overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual should pray for him. That the Lord would raise him up. Sometimes all you're talking does nothing. But I tell you that when you go in prayer for somebody, I'm telling you that's one of the most powerful things you can do. Jesus talking to Peter, he says to Peter, Peter, Satan's desire to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you that your faith fails not. Jesus was standing in a place as the Son of God. And when he prayed for Peter, look, Satan, not a demon, Satan himself wanted to sift Peter as wheat. He wanted to destroy Peter. He wanted to make him a, a public spectacle where people laugh and mock. But he said, I've prayed for you out of a position of sonship, understanding who he was in God and what his prayers meant. Okay? Now that you've been engrafted in, you stand in that position of sonship as a daughter, as a son of God. You stand in that position. So people that Satan would desire to sift as wheat, guess what? You've prayed for them so their faith fails not. Amen. And beyond that, I looked up every one of these words in here, for it is impossible for those who have once tasted of the heavenly gifts and were partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God, the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance. Not one of those words engulf salvation. Not one of them. Okay? We took if they fall away as falling away from salvation. It's impossible to bring them to repentance because, like I said, we attach words like works or repentance to salvation. And they are completely different things. Listen, repentance absolutely has its place in the body of Christ. But your repentance does not determine your salvation. Your acceptance of His payment determines your salvation. Okay, It can't be that if you repent long enough and good enough, if you repent enough, then God's going to somehow keep your salvation for you because of your repentance. Then it's based on, based on your work of repentance and not the work that Jesus did when he called it was finished. It was a finished work. Now we enter into that finished work. And it, our salvation is not based on works. We read in Corinthians, a man can suffer loss from all his works, but he himself shall be saved, but one is tried by fire. Because salvation is not produced by works. There's no good work that you could do to earn your salvation. There's not enough repentance that you can do to receive salvation. 
Now, where repentance comes in, we understand that James 1.13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own evil desires and enticed. Then when his desires has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. That death is a natural death. It's not a spiritual death. That's other scriptures we've used in the past. To say that God was going to separate you for, from Him for eternity. And that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about reaping the consequences of sin. Now, the reason, have I sinned in my past? Yes. Oh, yeah. Even as a Christian, I've sinned. But the reason I haven't experienced the death that this is talking about is because I understand the value of repentance. I understand that there's a value in it. But listen, even if I messed up, I mean, even if you messed up, seven times, 70 times in one day, God would forgive you. You're saying, well, that's a habitual sin. Somebody just going, I mean, 490 times in, in one day, this man sent him? But listen to what the Scripture says. The Scripture says, Peter says, how many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me in a day? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven times. That's 490 times. Now the question you have to ask yourself, is God going to hold the man to a higher standard than he would hold himself? Would he? Absolutely not. <laughs> so if he's telling Peter to forgive his brother 490 times in a day, what do you think he's going to do for you? There's no limit. There's no limit to your forgiveness. That means if you mess up and sin against God 490 times, it's not going to affect your salvation. It might really destroy your life, but it won't affect your salvation. Because salvation was never based upon your works. That's why we called the message eternally secure. Because you have a security that's not based upon what you've stored up for yourself, but, but based upon what God has already put in your reservoir. Amen. That you draw it on the moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I tell you what, this gets rid of condemnation. This gets rid of guilt. This gets rid of the feeling that God has left you for something that you did because you realize the value of the blood of Jesus and that his price was greater than any price that you could ever pay. Any mistake you ever made. Because if your mistake is bigger than the blood of Jesus to keep you out of heaven, then that means that your mistake is bigger than the blood of Jesus. And there's nothing in this earth that's bigger than the blood of Jesus. Jesus said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you even to the ends of the earth. What he said, never leave you, never forsake you. Either it's true or it's not. Churches divide over this stuff. There's been fights over it for centuries. But we have to align ourselves on one side or the other. There's no neutral ground in this. Now, there is compassion for people who haven't come to the understanding because we're not better than them because we all started like that. <laughs> but there's no neutral ground for you to believe that you can lose your salvation because if you want to stay neutral, you will live a defeated life because every time you mess up, you will feel like the blood of Jesus wasn't big enough to cover that mistake. And that's a lie from the devil. Amen. Now, Matthew chapter 6, 
verse 14 and 15. This is a verse that I used to use too. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men when they sin against you, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. I mean, it's pretty plain, right? It's saying if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Now, in the basis of that scripture, Jesus hasn't died yet. The work hasn't been finished yet. See, I was talking to my brother yesterday, and I said, like Pastor Mark says, that uh, I told Pastor Mark, I said, if anything you're preaching becomes revelation to me, I said, I'll give you credit the first time. After that, it's mine. <laughs> it's my revelation. <laughs> he said, I like it. I said, well, I'm glad you agree. Because <laughs> if he didn't like it, I would give him credit two times, and it became mine. <laughs> Amen. I was talking to my brother yesterday, and I was telling him, you know, we separated the book as the New Testament and the Old Testament. Old Testament, New Testament. You know, and like Pastor Mark says, it's, it's not the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And you ask yourself, well, where does Jesus fit in in these? Is he just New Testament? See, I don't believe Jesus was Old Testament, even though you find him in the Old Testament. He is absolutely New Testament. Yes, but he's not either or. See, there, there was a time frame in history where the old covenant was coming to an end and God was going to build a bridge and take you into the new covenant. Jesus is that bridge. He's the one that brings them both together. See, you couldn't get from the old testament to the new te or the old covenant to the new covenant without the bridge. And he was the bridge. He's the one in the middle. Amen. And it might shock you, but do you know that Jesus never healed anyone according to their ability to keep the law? Do you know the ones that were trying to keep the law never got healed? Why would that be? Self-righteous. Absolutely. They, feel, they felt like they could do it themselves. And when you feel like you have the ability to do this in yourself, it takes away God's ability. You understand that? So when we read scriptures like, if you don't forgive men their trespasses, God's not going to forgive your trespasses. We read that and we think, oh man, we're going to be separated from God. That's what most churches have been teaching. You're going to be separated from God. Where in, where in the world in that verse does salvation come up? It doesn't. It's not talking about that. It's talking about God being able to extend forgiveness to you. Because if you're walking around judging people in the manner that you judge, the Bible says that you will be judged. And it's not God judging you. Do you understand that what you sow into somebody else's life, you're going to reap? You understand that? So the forgiveness that God would want to extend to you through another person, now it don't function because you're walking in a spirit of judgment. And that spirit of judgment brings judgment. Amen. Luke chapter 13, verse 16. Jesus didn't heal anyone according to the Mosaic law. Nobody. Jesus kept the law blamelessly. But let me tell you something. Jesus didn't even operate according to the law of Moses. He didn't break it. Don't say something I didn't say. He didn't break the law. But he didn't operate according to it. Because according to the law of Moses, when they dragged the woman who was committed in adultery 
It's actually in John chapter 8, verses 3, I'm just going to paraphrase it for time, 3 through 11. When they caught her and brought her to Jesus, they said to Jesus, now if Jesus was operating according to the law, then by the law she should have been stoned. They said, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. That's what they said. And they said, the law of Moses said that she should be stoned. And then they say, what do you say? Jesus didn't even answer. How this peace drew for a little while. The Bible don't tell us how long. They're probably thinking, what is this guy doing? You know, they came to trap him in his words. So they think Jesus is a fool. So they're probably thinking, what is this guy doing? You know? And uh, he looks up. He just says some very simple words. Let you, without sin, cast the first stone. It says from the oldest to the youngest, they begin to drop their stones and leave. And Jesus said, where are your accusers? No man accuses you? She says, no man. And he says, neither do I. Or no man condemn you, actually, is what he said. And he said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Do you understand that if Jesus doesn't condemn you, he forgives you? But as I was reading that this week, you know, in there, it doesn't say one word about her repenting. It don't say one word about her saying how sorry she is and she wished she wouldn't have did that. She wouldn't have felt bad for committing the adultery. She would have felt bad for getting caught. You know, I mean, she would have felt bad for getting caught. And in there, it doesn't say one word about her repenting, saying, I'm sorry. And I was telling Mark, I said, the last few times that I've really blown it, and I know I've blown it. I said, I feel automatic in my spirit, automatically, that I'm forgiven. And I said, it's really weird. And he said the same thing happens to him. It's developing in this message of grace that we're not saved based on our works. Our relationship with God is not based upon our works. Our rewards in heaven, yes, they're based upon our works. It says that if your work stands, that you'll receive a reward. But it says that even if every work you had was consumed, that you would still be saved. Our salvation's not based upon works. The reason why I don't go and cheat on Heather, I've never cheated on Heather, never will, is because I understand that sin destroys everything close to me. It's not a temptation because I ask myself, am I willing to sacrifice everything I have for a momentary pleasure? Absolutely not. No, I'm not. <laughs> I would be a fool. And yes, people find themselves in that situation, given into a moment of weakness. But in that, they need to know that their relationship with God still stands that they're not forsaken, that they are forgiven in the worst decisions they ever made in their life, that God still loves them, and He's the one that's going to bring them through it, not keep them in it. Amen. Amen. So if Jesus didn't operate according to the Mosaic law, then what law did He operate? What covenant did He operate under? It would have had to been the covenant that God made with Abraham. Because listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 13, verse 16. He says, 
And ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, who Satan has bound? Who bound her? Satan did. Who was she a daughter of? Abraham. Absolutely. These 18 years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. So what did Jesus point to as for her having a right to be healed? According to what Jesus said, being a daughter of Abraham. What significance does that have to do with her healing and Jesus's ministry? God made a covenant with Abraham and he promised that he would bless his descendants and in that blessing sickness doesn't belong there and in that blessing disease doesn't belong there and in that blessing financial lack didn't belong there. She had a right to what Abraham had because of his covenant that God made with Abraham not because of the covenant that she made with God. Do you understand? The thing is, is that we have a right to everything God has because of the covenant that was made with Jesus and God. Amen. It made Abraham our father, Jesus our Savior, and God our Father. The Bible says that if you're in Christ, if you've accepted the payment of every wrong thing you've did, if you've accepted the full payment of the law, that you, if you're in Christ, are Abraham's seed. Now listen, if this woman had a right to healing based on the covenant that God made with Abraham, and according to the scripture, she did, and it says that if you're in Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, then what is entailed in your covenant has to be greater. Because not, Abraham didn't have the shed blood of Jesus Christ that covered everything he did. But he did have the spoken word of God over his life confirmed by covenant oath, which is God saying, I will destroy myself if I do not fulfill this. So this woman who Satan bound for 18 years had a right to healing based upon something her great, 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 great grandfather did when he made a covenant with God and God made a covenant with him. Do you understand our rights under this new covenant? Our rights allow us to actually come into the presence of God Sin kept them out of the presence of God in the Old Testament. But the thing is, is that all your sin was nailed on the cross with Jesus. He took it to hell and he didn't keep it when he rose again. He left it there. Amen. And when he rose from the dead, I always tell mercy because it says that he ascended into the deeps. I tell mercy. I love telling it. It makes me happy. I said, Jesus beat up Satan so bad. Him and all the demons. I said, he went in there. He beat them up so bad. He took the keys of hell, death, and the grave away from them. And then he gave them back to a man and said, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Amen. I'm telling you, I really believe when Jesus went into the depths of hell, he beat Satan pretty bad. <laughs> they didn't expect the kung fu that he brought. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Amen. This is what Jesus says. Use this scripture too. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it bringeth forth much fruit. I heard somebody preaching on this this week. I don't even know who the man was. I was just listening to something. And he said, that word takes away 
does not mean take away. He said it means lift up. And I said, no, that, that can't be right. So I go, you know, when I get the chance, look up the verse. I know where it's at, you know. And I'm thinking, I'm going to see if this is right. Look it up in the Greek. Sure enough, it means to bear up, to lift up, or to support. And I'm thinking, what in the world is the significance of that? So I get on YouTube. Significance of raising a dead vine, not producing fruit. You know there's something to people who own vineyards and things like that? Do you know when a branch isn't producing fruit, they actually lift it up and support it to help it bear fruit? We've seen this scripture here as he's going to take you away. Yeah, and it's not saying that. He's saying that if you're not bearing fruit, he's going to come under you and raise you up. I did. I thought that was strong. Because... Religion doesn't teach us these things. These things only come from a development and a relationship with God. When you re realize how extravagant and how great His love is towards us, and nothing you can ever do can take that love away from you. The Apostle Paul says, what shall separate us? The first, first time he asked, he asked it as a question. What shall separate us? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or heights or depths or any other thing be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? He asked that question and then he replied to it. He said, for I am persuaded right after that. It came from a personal revelation that he had. He was fully persuaded that nothing, none of those things could separate him from the love of God which he had in Christ. And that love's inside of you. Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads, pray, and we'll dismiss. Praise God. Lord Jesus, I thank you for blessing your people, Lord God. I thank you for allowing me to minister the word this morning. I thank you for the blessing, Lord God, of triumphant grace. I thank you that these people realize, everyone who here realize that they are family, Lord God, and that you've cultivated a family here, Lord Jesus. This is beyond just a church attendance, Lord God, that we love them. And I honestly know that they love us, Father. And I thank you that that love, Lord God, grows stronger every Sunday we're here, Lord Jesus, every time we meet together. I ask you that you would meet their needs that you would bless them this week, that they would experience your love in a, in a deeper depth, Lord God, than they've ever experienced it, and that they would realize, Lord God, that their salvation is always secure because you're the one who secured it for them and for me. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.